Hi everyone, thanks for tuning in to Shoot the Breeze with Alexandria Marie and I am your host Alexandria Marie. Welcome, welcome, welcome. I am super excited about today's episode. Today's guest, drumroll, is Kimberly Alay. So, I like I said, I'm super excited for today's episode. So if you are not familiar with um, Kimberly. She is a video editor producer with Rolling Stones. Her directorial debut, Woke, received international official selection status and won 11 awards across the festival. She not only directed the short film, Woke, but she wrote it. Yes, she is a wonder woman and she is a boss and I want you guys to help me get her on the show yes wonder woman in action yes so if you want a little bit of insight on video editing or filmmaking or being a director you make sure to stay tuned and if you don't look this is a wonder woman this is a boss this is a female of color putting her imprint out into the world and she is showing us that we can do it and she is modeling for young women that will come after her so even if you don't want to know a little bit about film and director or being a director rather or writing just still stay on and you know learn a little bit of something there's absolutely nothing wrong with retaining more information let's get her on you guys hey can you hear me yes 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 i can hear okay, you yay, sorry. <laughs> okay awesome. but thank you thank you so so much for coming on the platform so if you guys are unaware I have the most fabulous guest today. Now, I don't want to say your last name wrong, so I'm just going to say I have Kimberly. <laughs> Kimberly Aaliyah. It's actually oh. my middle name. Yeah, oh. it's my middle name. I just use it as my last. Oh, okay. Because I was like, it looks like it says Aaliyah because my daughter name is Aaliyah, but it's spelled A-A-L-I-Y-A-H. So I was like, hmm. Don't oh, this beautiful name. That. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, but she is the uh, video and editor producer with Rolling Stones, correct? Yes. Why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself before we go into the um, interview? Yeah, of course. Um, so I'm living in New York now, but I grew up in Atlanta and it's a music city, right? So um, pretty hard to escape it. It was always a part of my childhood, whether it was my friends trying to be rappers and me making music videos for them on my like flip phone, all of that stuff. Um, and then I moved to New York for college. I went to Barnard College, which is a women's college and studied film there. Um, from college, I pretty much knew that I wanted to work in media, but there's so many different things that you can do, right? There's magazines, there's TV, there's film. Um, but I knew that I liked short digital formats. So I took a job at Viacom working on their advanced advertising team um, and immediately realized that I needed to be a little bit closer to the creative. Found myself at BuzzFeed about a year later, um, which I will always look back on as some of my most fond memories of just working in digital content because it's such a incubator and there's so many thoughts just coming in at once. 
Um, saw the Rolling Stone job post online and was like, this seems like finally the perfect marriage of music, short format, video content. Sent an application out into the ether, got the job, and now I've been at Rolling Stone for, oh, wow, with the pandemic. Keep forgetting this like nine month time warp I have to add in. I've been at Rolling Stone for almost two years now. Um, just working on interview content with different musicians, different entertainers, and all that stuff. Nice, nice. I love how you said nine months and you don't even know what happened. I don't even know the time of day <laughs> yeah. sometimes. I just, I wake up at work and I'm like, wait, what's today? Or the other day I was talking to my mom and I said something like, um, and then for the summer we can. And she was like, baby, summer has happened, happened. (laughs) Right. Where did it go? I'm not a summer person to begin with. Mm -hmm. I love the fall and winter, but I I honestly don't know when sunrise and sunsets. I, I couldn't. So let's talk about your role as a video editor, producer a little bit. I can imagine, you know, the time it takes to produce and edit. Um, how do you find uncontrollables, especially with personalities when it comes to, you know, editing and producing? Yeah, absolutely. So I guess I'll talk about it in two pieces. I can start with the producing. Um, so for people that don't know, for media companies, what video producing normally looks like is that you have different talent that is either promoting an album, promoting a film, promoting something. Um, and they and their PR, their representatives will come to the magazine and say, hey, we'd love to give you a chance to sit down and talk to this person, not only about this specific project, but just you know their extending body of work and how it fits into that. From there, as a video producer, we have to choose which concept um, best aligns for this person. Out of the concepts, we have about seven different standing franchises. Um, Two of the ones that I work on a lot are a show called The First Time, where we ask people about some of their industry and professional first. And then another show that I work on that I really like is called The Breakdown. And it's uh, breaking down songs, breaking down albums, breaking down scenes from movies, you know, all of just the weeds of what went into this creative work. Um, So we pick the concept and then, you know, comes the research process. It's if it's a film, it's watching the movie first. Right. Um, If it's an album, it's listening to the album. But it's also doing research into who is this musician? Who is this actor as a person? What is their larger creative arc? You know, how can I ask those questions that position this particular uh, piece of work in their larger body of work? After the research uh, process, you know, I have my Google Doc of my questions. Now that we're in the pandemic, (laughs) I set up a Zoom call. Um, In person, it normally means scheduling time in our studio that's uh, fortunately located within our offices. But we schedule it, we sync up, and then is, you know, the fun part. Just like we're doing right now, we'll have a conversation, follow the guidelines on the Google Doc. And, you know, the beautiful thing about interviews is that you're talking to real people in real time and recording them. So you may end up veering off of your question list and find something much more interesting. Um, And from that part of it is when I put on my editing hat. Because now I'm left with the raw footage, the raw recording, and it's about choosing those moments to best represent the conversation that I've had with this person, but in a shorter format. Normally, we'll talk to people for about, you know, 45 minutes to an hour and a half. And most of our shows run around 15 minutes, sometimes less, sometimes more. Um, And we do have certain franchises that are a bit longer. But I always say... The thing about editing is that whether it's a podcast, whether it's a TV show, whether it's a film, 
the story really is made in the edit. Um, and a lot of people don't know that because the better you are as, at your job as an editor, the more invisible your work is because it just makes something flow naturally. Nice, nice. I can't believe you put 45 minutes to an hour and a half and short it down to 15 minutes. That is magic. Uh, yeah, that's <laughs> stress. Um, <laughs> no, but you, you get used to it. And one thing that I will say... Um, when you first start editing, you want to keep everything, especially if it's an incredibly compelling conversation, but especially in this digital landscape, working with YouTube, working with our website that we publish content to, we have a lot of data about attention spans. We have a lot of data about drop-off times. And so you want to make sure you're making it as easy as possible for your audience to access the most important information. Right. Very true. So what's the biggest challenge you have when it comes to your specific role as a video editor, producer, and how are you going to overcome it? I think right now, um, and it's, a, it's very interesting to, you know, talk about my job in the context of the pandemic, because working in a digital medium, um, you know, our workflow is actually ramped up. We're making about three to five times more content. And so my biggest obstacle actually isn't as specifically pertained to the work, but it's just about carving out time for myself. And, you know, our offices have become our homes and making sure that I find ways to delineate that space because I am a Capricorn. I am <laughs> all of those tropes of type A people working in media. And, you know, I will log on and look up and especially with daylight savings, it's a lot later than I think. Um, and so I've been just doing a lot of work to make sure that I'm delineating space between the work that I'm doing, but also just being a, you know, a full person um, outside of that and making sure I'm taking care of myself and not getting too lost in the content. Hmm. To touch on daylight savings, is it just me or does it seem like this year's daylight savings is different? Like it's getting darker yes quicker you're getting more tired it's, it's just like what no. is wrong with this, <laughs> year? this year like I don't know if it's just me but I feel like it's maybe four o'clock we get golden hour especially working you know in video like I'm used to knowing where the sun is in the sky like that's something you learn in film school about golden hour how long it lasts and so golden hour will hit at four now and instead of having that full range of all the yellows, the oranges, the pinks until about 4.45 to 5.30, it's like 4.15 and it feels like it's 10.30 at night. So then it's 7.30 and I'm like, I guess I should go to bed. But then sometimes I'm still working and I have to remind myself, like, Kimberly, people are still eating dinner. It's still <laughs> earlier than you think. Oh, my gosh. It throw it, it's throwing me off. I have no idea what's going on, you know. We know that the universe is constantly expanding every day. Mm -hmm. And if this is the expansion, well, the result of the expansion, I needed to, you know, shrink a little yeah. bit because I don't have to be so late, so early. Exactly. How is being a woman of color impacted your work and your creativity at Rolling Stone? I think that... One of the things about being a woman of color in a traditionally or predominantly white male space, which um, is film, is video, especially in media, um, it's really driven me to have a love for data because, of course, I can sit at a table and pitch why I think this talent, this idea, this whatever is someone that is we, that we should cover, is someone that will, is contributing to the culture in a meaningful way. 
Um, but just in my experience across Viacom, across MTV, across BuzzFeed, across Rolling Stone, I have found that there is a power in showing data and just saying, hey, this audience is and they're hungry for content. And it would be a poor business decision to not, you know, lean into that. Um, and one of the things that's so beautiful about data is that it allows you to have intersections, right? I think any woman, any minority that enters a space that they are, you know, not in the majority, you understand what it feels like to see people that represent you um, represented as monoliths. And with data, it's not just what do Black women want to listen to? It's what do Black women from ages 18 to 25 in Atlanta, Georgia want to listen to versus people in New York City versus people, you know, and you can just really get into the minutia of how multifaceted people are as human beings and why they consume art in different ways. Um, and so I always say that that closeness to data is very linked to me being a woman of color in, you know, this predominantly white, predominantly male media space. Right. So have you ever found any conflicts when you want to present, you know, a story or maybe present someone that you want to interview? Have you ever, you know, had a conflict in that? And if so, how did you go about it? And I think I think data is the answer to that. Um, I've totally across the board and with anyone pitching talent, um, it's always a convincing process. Right. That's pretty natural to the median. And so for me, what I found is that, you know, whether it's at Rolling Stone, whether it's at BuzzFeed, whether it's wherever, I'm probably going to know a different set of artists than people around me or maybe not. Um, but when you come equipped with that data, it's pretty hard to be told no, just because it, it's data. It's objectively factual that there is a need for this audience to be addressed. And if we are in the business of making content, that is our job. So what's the biggest surprise you've had in the last few months and why, especially because we've been in this pandemic whirlpool? Yeah, I think, um, and like I was saying, I've always been a lover of stories, whether those are told through music, whether those are told through TV shows, you know, whether those are told through books. And with the pandemic, we're in this very interesting time in content where, you know, shows are not being filmed. So their second seasons, their first seasons are being delayed award seasons are being delayed. This is the first time in my life that, you know, I haven't had, we're talking about summer. Summer is always very meaningful to me because that is when all of the big box office movies are released. And I have so many memories with friends, with families of, you know, expecting that lineup to be released in the spring and looking forward to going to those things. And so for me, I think um, what I didn't anticipate at the beginning of this pandemic was how much having that cycle just completely upended was going to affect me personally. Because when you're making content, you have to be constantly consuming content. They say the best writers are the best readers, you know. Um, and so it's been really not difficult, but it just has had to be an extra concerted effort for me to make sure I'm consuming as much content as normal. So how do you continue to learn in order to stay on top of things? Yeah. So for me, um, books, are, I, I read voraciously. I try to read about two books a week. Right now, I'm actually reading this book called His Only Wife. Um, it's been described as Crazy Rich Asians, but set in West Africa. It takes place in Ghana. Um, and so I try to, books, publishing is one of the industries that obviously has been interrupted, but the the cadence of releasing content hasn't been 
disrupted in the same way as like obviously TV being the most affected. But um, just reading those stories and talking to people about them. And, you know, I have a lot of friends that read as well. And so I'll read books with them and we'll have a dialogue around it. And it really does kind of take up that space of everyone seeing a TV show and then getting on Twitter to talk about it. I can just kind of emulate that within my friend groups, within my family. And then also just, you know, the industry has changed a lot in these past few months. We're having digital film festivals and stuff like that. So just making sure that I'm really taking the time to calm out those opportunities for myself and participate. So you're also a film director as well. And you not only wrote, but you directed the short film. Yes, that's correct. Okay. So we're definitely going to touch upon woke and um, all the trials and tribulations that you went through with that. But let's start with film directing. Um, Film directing to me, you know, Mm -hmm. I'm not a film director, but I, I view it as, you know, being a part of the management crew. So in regards to that, Mm-hmm. Right. With that being said, if you have an actor that's being unprofessional, how would you manage the situation? Well, I think the beautiful thing about film sets is that there are so many people behind the camera that help to, you know, take it, it take it from script to screen. And so your job as a director is to take it from script to screen and the creative capacity. It's envisioning how everything looks and how the cadence moves through. Luckily, if anyone is getting in the way of your ability to do that, you have your unit production managers, you have your, you know, assistant producers, assistant directors. So I actually would not have to deal with that person. It would be either the unit production manager, either the assistant director, it would become something for them to take care of in a way that doesn't affect me. Because obviously, Mm -hmm. if the director is affected in the same way that if talent is affected, you really won't have a film. You really won't be able, you will waste a day. Um, And because films are so expensive to make, you'll waste a day of money, which no one wants to do. Oh, really? So I guess TV doesn't portray it so well because on television, you know, when an actor isn't doing what the director wants them to do, the director gets up out of the seat and pretty much, you know, goes at it with the actor. So that's not how it really well, is so in real life. I thought life. you meant that there was like a conflict outside of the work. If there's a creative disagreement between the actor and between the director, you know, I am very much of the belief that you hire people because you believe that they can do that job, right? And so if I'm working with a direct, mm-hmm. like a DP, I think is a good example. As a director, I have one way of creatively thinking but the director of photography has a completely different visual language that I have to trust. So if there were to arise a conflict between me and a director of photography that I was working with, I would have to hear them out and I would have to hear them, you know, explain, this is why I want to capture this shot in this way. And this is how I think that that creative vision serves your ultimate creative arc as a director, whether we agree, whether we disagree, you know, my style of directing is I've hired this person for a reason. So I have to trust their judgment on this decision. Um, and the same way with acting, you know, it's a, we're talking about creative things, right? So there's not just one, there's not a right or wrong answer. There's just different ways of doing it. And so I would have mm-hmm. to, you know, talk through their process with them. They would have to listen through why I want to do it this way. And, you know, as a director, there are multiple takes. So you can film a scene. All right, you want to try it this way? Let's film it. I can film a scene. All right, let's do it this way all right, let's find the marriage between those two scenes. And then, you know, going back to this workshop that is a film director, 
ultimately there's going to be an editor that gets all of this raw footage and that person is the one that's going to comb through and make those selects and piece it all together and i think that i've always been a very collaborative person and that's why i'm naturally drawn to film mm -hmm. because everyone gets to paint their part of the picture to put it together and that picture doesn't look great if you're not trusting each other all right so with woke you know, your everyday life is editor producer, but with Woke, you were the writer and the director. Was it hard for you to take off that editor hat and give it to someone That's a else? Great question. I think I'll backtrack a little bit and I'm glad that this is coming up because it's a very common, uh, commonly confusing thing. So in digital media, which is, you know, the magazines, but also these digital native publishers, you know, like Complex or now Nylon, just different places that only exist online. The titles mean something a little bit differently. For example, you don't have directors for the types of videos that I make. You just have producers, editors, and host. So a producer in the sense of the digital media landscape is the person that comes up with the creative vision for the piece. If we're talking about traditional film, traditional TV, a producer is actually the person that, you know, sits at the top and assembles the full creative team. They, they, you know, either they get the script first, which normally happens, or they get a chunk of money first to create this thing. And then they go through and pick the director, the writer, the editor, the DP, the all of the different people underneath that hub. And then editing, of course, is the same across it. But editing, you know, short format pieces is very different than editing a feature length film. And, you know, there are multiple editors for film and TV, whereas for digital media, you generally only have one editor for the video. And then you'll have um, a motion designer or a graphics person that drops in all of those cool, colorful overlays, those transitions and stuff like that. So for me, it actually wasn't a flip of a hat, you know, to go back from a digital media producer to a film director because they're very close. If I had been a film producer moving to a film director, that would be a very different conversation. Um, but I think it may be beneficial if I talk through the process of Woke as just like how it came to be and all of that because it was a very unique process in the way that I did it. Okay, so let's talk about yeah, that. Yeah, so basically this was, um, I just graduated from school and one of my close friends from home who didn't study film in college, but um, has always been a creative person, basically approached me and was like, hey, I have this idea. I want to tell this story. I want to make a film. Can you help me? Um, and so I was just like, yes, I hadn't signed on in any formal capacity um, as a director, as a writer or whatever. It was just two friends and I was workshopping an idea with him. Um, and it very quickly just kind of shook out as, you know, the person that I was working with, his name is Ronnie Braithwaite. He has a very producer mindset. He's very good at being like, okay, I have this idea and I know that this is what I want it to be like, but I know that I can't do it by myself. And so this is how I'm going to assemble the people and this is how I'm going to assemble the money. And I very naturally just fell into the space of writing it because I was like, you know what, I can just give you a frame and maybe this will inspire something. Um, and so we kind of very piecemealed together <laughs> a script um, and then him having that producer mindset, he came back to me after a month and was like, hey, I went on um, Indiegogo, which is a, you know, a crowdfunding resource for independent creators. And he had raised, I think it was 15K at the time to start making this thing. <laughs> and so I was kind of like, oh, okay, we're doing yeah. this, doing this. Um, and so it turned into 
you know, him leading casting, me working to hash out this script, him finding the director of photography we're going to work with, the sound editor, this, that, and the other. And, you know, it just, it was a very piecemeal kind of thing. He was located in Miami at the time. So I flew to Miami for a weekend and we shot a short film in three days, which, um, again, was an incredibly stressful situation, but was really fun. And we both learned a lot on set. To answer your original question about, you know, then turning that work over to someone else to edit it, yes, it gives you an incredible amount of anxiety because, you know, you're the person that's been leading the creative for three days, working super intimately with all of the actors, with everyone on set. And then you just have this thing that you just have to pass on to the next person. Um, but I do think that there's a lot to be said about trust and how that shapes you as a creative throughout these types of processes. Because my, my director of photography, his name is David, he was able to see things that I wouldn't have thought to do. Um, and that let me know why it's so important to research the people that you're hiring to work with, to collaborate with, because they are going to be an extension of your creative vision. I mean, you guys filmed that in three days. That is amazing. I did not know that. And those three days, you guys won 11 yeah, awards, correct? That is amazing. Wow. I, I, I mean, I saw it. It was really short, but I didn't, I couldn't imagine that it took only three days. I thought, man, this would have taken a few months, you know, to mm -hmm. try to get everyone together on the same page. But Thank that's, you. that's awesome. So what advice would you give any of the listeners um, that are listening to get into that kind of industry, the film industry, the producing industry, you know, what advice yeah, would you give I them? I have this saying that I come back to a lot and it's just, um, let it be bad. I think as creatives, it's very hard to do that first thing, to put the words on page, to you know, make the short film, pick up your phone even, right? It doesn't have to be a full scale production to start writing a song or any of that stuff. As human beings, we just have a lot of anxiety about taking that first step. Everyone's very precious and anxious about making creative things just because they're so close to your heart and so close to your mind. And taking those things out of your body and putting them into the world is a very scary thing. Um, but I think you just have to learn to erase all that and just let something live in the world. And the more that you start making and start doing, whether it starts bad, whether it starts great, it has to start somewhere. And you just have to keep working and keep doing it and keep making stuff. And eventually, you know, those things that you have in your heart and in your mind will become more refined as they exist in the world. And that's the only way that you'll ever get a start in it. I like that. Let it be bad. I'm a firm believer yeah. of failing to succeed. So I like, I like that a lot. So what is your favorite memory of writing and directing Woke? I think, let me think. So my favorite memory directing, um, there's a scene in the film that takes place on a school bus. And the actual film, the actual scene itself is very short, but I think about you know, this was my first film. This was my friend's first film. And just like, there were so many chaotic pieces and that, and getting that school bus to that filming location was one of those things. Um, I think my friend had like found a school bus rental service online and you can already just imagine how dodgy that is because like, why are people renting school buses? Like there's just, <laughs> there's a world of stuff existing there. It's kind of like, oh, okay, we're just going to go with this and like send this pile of money into this place and hope that, 
you know, a school bus arrives. So we're sitting on set and, you know, the bus is supposed to be pulling around to the backside of it. There's also a, a lot to be said about set safety and set protocol and set insurance. And with school buses, large vehicles, they can't be in certain proximity to like certain electricity things. So we have finally figured that out, cleared the space, the bus is supposed to be pulling up um, and it's just, it's not there. And so we're texting, we're trying to figure it out. We're just like, again, with your first film, everything is super heightened. So you're like, this is going to be the end of this filming day. We're not going to finish it. We only have this weekend. We're going to have to cut a scene, something drastic. is going to have to happen to make up for this mistake. Um, and so like maybe 20 minutes goes by and all of the actors, oh, this was the only day that we worked with extras aside from our core cast. Um, and so we have all of these extras some of the extras had parents there so it's just like a lot of moving pieces and we're very stressed out and then we hear this insane honking noise and the bus pulls around with just the sweetest woman ever was like i'm so sorry i was late like it's south florida it's super hot the bus overheated i had to pull over for a little bit of time but i'm here now um and so we all we got on the bus we filmed the scene to her point it was it had to have been close to a hundred degrees. Like I, it was so, 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 so warm. Everyone was sweating. Um, but because it was a party bus scene, it actually added to that realness of it, that we had been on these kind of emotional lows and highs and it was super warm. And so I'll always laugh at that moment because it seemed like it was a huge moment of failure. And it ends up being one of the scenes people always tell me about when they watch the film. In terms of writing it, I don't think I have any specific memory, but just the process of, you know, making something with a close friend. This is one of my close childhood friends, right? So this is someone I've known for decades. Um, we just had so many late calls between New York and Miami. And we were at this point in our lives where we had both just graduated from school and we were making this creative thing. And it definitely was a formative moment. Um, this was before I got the job at Viacom. So I was just making something with a friend, late night calls, putting something together. And I think that will always just be very special to me that I was able to do it in that way. So let's go back to your job at Rolling Stone. Can you tell me one of your favorite people recently that you had a sit down with? Yeah, so um, actually, I just talked to Keegan-Michael Key um, maybe two weeks ago. The interview just published yesterday, but he has a new film on Netflix called Jingle Jangle, and it's it's an amazing holiday film. Um, David E. Talbert is the director, and he kind of had this idea that, you know, oftentimes Christmas films are these Victorian-era pieces, and they get all the the Christmas magic with, you know, those traditional images that you associate with. And maybe there's a person of color here or there, but they're never centered. And he was just like, we're going to bypass all the reasons that historians say we can't exist in these spaces. And we are just going to, you know, let it, it's just going to be centered in this way. And it's this beautiful holiday story. I definitely recommend watching it. It's on Netflix. Um, but the reason that this interview stands out with me is actually not because of the, the work that we were talking about but because of the day that we filmed it. Um, like I said, we've been doing these Zoom interviews, which means that either I set up a Zoom link and send it to the talent's rep and then they log on that way, or they've actually recreated the junket process um, in an online space, which means that Netflix sends me a link, I go to a Zoom waiting room and then get pushed into the interviewing room with the talent. 
And this particular interview just happened to fall um, on a Sunday, which I try not to take weekend interviews, but again, Capricorn pandemic at home. Uh, work is work. Why not work? Right. <laughs> so it was a Sunday and I just, um, I don't know. I was just, I was tired. I, I didn't know what to expect. Junkets are always a little bit more cumbersome and maybe, maybe it works right on time, but maybe you're waiting for an hour and a half. And his energy was just so wonderful. Um, and it was, it, you could tell that he's the type of person that appreciates anyone and everyone taking their time to hear something that he has to say about something he's created or a creative work that he's participated in. Um, and I think that it was just a really big lesson for me that the energy that you bring into the room really can set the tone for everyone and really can affect everyone's day. And to see someone, you know, as successful as him treat me in that way, exist in that way. Um, it led for a, an amazing conversation, not just about the film, but we also got to talk about Jimi Hendrix. We got to talk about just a number of things. Um, it's something that I will keep at the front of my mind for a while. Yes, it is very important. You know, to realize the power of energy, you know, I nice. time, as a Pisces, you know, very, mm -hmm. very important to me. <laughs> so if I could remove all the barriers and constraints, what project would you do and yeah, why? Absolutely. I think, um, music videos are like a very natural next step for me just because you know I'm talking about I like telling short format stories more than long format stories I like you know mu film is my passion but music was my first love not just because of growing up in Atlanta but I grew up as a dancer and so I, I think of things sonically um, before I think about them visually and so music videos have I've always been enamored with them and we're in this golden age of music videos you know going back to Kanye West my beautiful dark twisted fantasy moving through Lemonade, where, you know, albums are also an opportunity for short films. Um, and so if all barriers, all constraints, all contracts <laughs> um, were, you know, alleviated, I think that is a very natural first step, for, next step for me. And I hope to be moving to that space soon. So music videos, huh? So who would you like to direct a music video with? Right now, I mean, I, I keep a list um, and I don't want to jinx anything. I am very superstitious, but Rico Nasty is someone that I mm -hmm. would like to work with. I love when, you know, because music videos can just be, you know, just giving a, a fun visual to associate to a song. But increasingly we have this, these artists that are storytellers in multiple formats. And I just see her as that type of person. She's very creative, but she's also hilarious and so fun and I think that that makes for really good creative partnerships when people are you know have such holistic creative visions that they want to put in multiple formats in multiple ways um I just I would love to work with her now you speak on film and music with such a passion that you know do you remember when you decided I'm gonna go into the film or music or just entertainment industry yeah, as I a think, whole. I don't think I, it was ever a conscious choice for me. You know, I talk about growing up in Atlanta and being surrounded by music and being a dancer. Um, but the other piece to it was that 
you know, my mom has always just been someone that made up stories and told us stories, whether she was writing them down or not, whether it was before bed, she always made up her own. My dad was that, you know, 90s, 2000s dad with the camcorder. My entire childhood is documented. <laughs> um, and I think that, you know, later in life, yeah. I look back on those memories and like my dad would take those video recordings and like cut them into family DVDs. My mom would write down some of her stories. Like I just very organically, I've only existed in a world that was, you know, moved forward through storytelling. And so it's always just been this natural extension of me. So I think, you know, when we go through college and then you get spat out into the real world, you kind of just gravitate to what you know. And for me, that was stories. And, you know, entertainment is the place where stories live. Now, this series is um, Wonder Woman series, and it's to highlight women that are giving themselves to the world as well as giving to themselves. You know, many times yeah. we don't do that. It's very difficult, especially women of color, to give to others and still mm -hmm. give to ourselves. Now, I've seen your Instagram and I, you know, I see the pictures you take and, you know, showing how you are not only feeding the world, but you're feeding yourself as well, which is a good thing to do. So can you tell our listeners, how do you find time? How do you carve out time for yourself to ensure that you are nourishing yourself and Absolutely. feeding yourself? Like you said, I think you know, as Black women, something that we have to learn is that you can't pour from an empty cup. I know that I've had to remind myself of that a number of times. Um, yoga is something that really, really grounds me and makes me pause. I do it every day. I'm actually in the process of getting my certification finally because I want to share that gift with other people. Um, but yoga is something, journaling, even just making small rituals for yourself. One of mine is just, I make it a point to make like making a cup of tea is the first thing that I do every day. Um, and I have like a fun tea maker I bought for myself to make it just like a process and just making myself do a small ritual that takes time and grounding it in a physical practice slows my mind down, makes, you know, less adrenaline, less cortisol, all, all of those things not run in my body. And I do want to emphasize that it's not something that was easy to do especially being in New York, especially working in media, you know, it's really, really easy to just go, 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 go. You know, you hear all these horrible sayings like, I'll sleep when I'm dead and stuff like that. And you really have to rewire your mind that, you know, life is short and busyness is not at all the type of capital that you want to exist and trade upon. Like you have to prioritize yourself, your peace, your well-being to enter the world and live fully. Exactly. Wellness yes. is true wealth. That is my model. Wellness is true wealth. So I always close the interview with one last question. So before I do that, tell everybody where they can link up with you. And if they want to work with you, just let everybody know all your tags yeah, and everything absolutely. like that. It's super simple. I'm at Kimberly Aaliyah. I'm sure there'll be a graphic with the spelling for everything um, in the episode, but it's the same across all social platforms. As a digital creator, I'm on social all the time. DM me, tweet me, comment on an Instagram, um, and I'm very accessible. Yes, thank you so, so, so very much for coming on. <laughs> I know we had technical As difficulties. It goes, you know. <laughs> yes, 
Yes. But I do hope you guys learned a little bit about the film and entertainment industry. I know I did because I'm novice. I know absolutely nothing than what I see when I watch TV. But like she said, she's very accessible. So if you guys want to know more, you know, yes, shoot her DM, you know, email. That's what I did. <laughs> we followed each other. I was like, hey, do you want to get on the podcast? She was like, yes, of course. Tell me what it's about. So look, you guys, if I could do it, you can do it as well. So the last question I want to ask you that I ask everyone that comes on my show is, what does success mean to you? That's a great question. Let me think. I mean, I think a trend throughout this interview, and I'm sure you've gotten this from me, is the people around me have always informed the art that I'm making. And so for me, I don't know what success is, but I know that once I'm there, it is only realized through sharing it. Um, and that looks like, uh, like, I won't feel successful if I'm not working with the people that have been climbing the ladder with me. I won't feel successful if I can't share the benefits of that success with other people. And for me, that looks like, you know, expanding platforms and storytelling is so important to me because it lets people feel represented and feel seen. And so success for me is creating opportunities for people to feel those things and then sharing it with the people that have made me who I am. That, that is nice. I like that. I like that. <laughs> I might have to put that on a t-shirt. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much, Kimberly, for carving out some time and getting on my platform. It means so much to me. And I'm so blessed that yeah, you actually thank you so came much on. For having me. I'm thank looking so forward much. to the episode and I just congratulate, like I said, I, I understand what it's like to create something. So congratulations on keeping this series up through a pandemic nonetheless. Thank you again so much and thank have you. a wonderful well. and blessed rest of the day.